Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 246. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Our Father, our King, thank you for bringing us once again to a place where we can quiet our hearts and tune into your spirit, allowing the words that you have uh, left and preserved for us to impact us, to to um, wash over us, to convict us, to um, bring us to a place where we need to take its message and, and internalize it so that we can walk it out, so that we can be witnesses. Thank you for this mandate of taking this good news around the world and sharing with other people. In fact, it's it's not just our main deity, it's part of prophecy. We're going to read um, some prophecy uh, scriptures tonight. We're studying end-time prophecy in one of the segments of my live study. And, and yet, part of what Yeshua left for us, part of what the Son of God told us, is that the gospel will go around the world before the end times um, finalize, before the end of the age concludes. And so, we are actually helping prophecy come to a proper conclusion by taking the gospel to other people to allowing it to be um, translated into other languages and, and reaching unreached people groups around the world so thank you for this opportunity to partner with you in helping your very words come to um reality uh continue to bless us and raise us up and protect us even as um things around us are just so crazy crazy weather crazy in politics crazy uh and happening in different parts of the world um we cannot turn on the news without you know seeing another either some type of terrorist attack or some type of bombing or some type of uh you know crazy earthquake or uh crazy sub-zero temperatures and, and and wicked uh snow and things like that lord we know that sooner or later Things will kick in to where this type of crazy activity in the world will be an indicator that we're right in the very end of the end. It's the beginning of the end, which is the end of the beginning, right? So thank you for um, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and uh, hearts to have this expectancy that you, Lord Yeshua, are returning soon. Hallelujah. Maranatha. May you come soon. We'll be careful, Lord, to give the praise and glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us for these live internet studies. My name is Arul bin Lyman Hanavi, and this is the first of two segments in the live internet studies. It's an hour and a half long, and the first segment is given over to a topic known as Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End Time Events, where we look at the end time scenarios, and we're working our way through Matthew's Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 with a view towards, as you can see on your screen, the book of Revelation. That's really what this study is about, but... We've got to get the proper background and, and mine and glean and study all of the passages that work their way up to the book of Revelation, namely all those Old Testament prophecies, particular books of Daniel, uh, you know, providing us timings. Uh, Isaiah is a heavy uh, player in this game. Jeremiah shows up a lot. Zechariah. Uh, even the tiny book of Joel has a lot to say about end-time scenarios. And then when we work our way through Yeshua's discourse with his disciples in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, and Luke 21, and then keep pushing through the New Testament into Paul's letters to the Thessalonians and even Peter's uh, two small epistles there, and then finally turning to the book of John, that's when we begin to realize that when John was given this revelation by Yeshua at the uh, exile in, in, on Patmos, that um, he was already 
working with this rich, vast wealth of apocalyptic uh, genre, apocalyptic language that was already um, given way back. Like I said, it's going back to the book of Daniel and things like that. I mean, it, truly, it actually goes even farther back. We could, if we wanted to push the case, we could go all the way back to De Deuteronomy, you know, things like that. But um, I'm glad that you've joined us. We left off where last week where we took a look at a Christian pastor by the name of Thomas Ice, who gave an interpretation of Matthew 24 to 25, where there's this part in chapter 24 of Matthew that is a topic on this idea of who is taken and who is left. And when we look at that passage directly, let me turn to it so you can see, in Matthew 24, starting at verse 36, I'll just read that relevant part, starting, yes, yeah, I'll start back up for the context, but about that day and hour, no one knows, Yeshua's talking about his second return. He says, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. And we've already established the idea that there are two groups of people that exist in any given age, and there will be these two people, group, groups of people will be more pronounced in the final days as the last last seven years of history is fast approaching and the reason it's pronounced is because we could say that there is this maturing of this harvest and the harvest is the or the separation are between what yeshua told us in Mar uh, matthew 13 as the wheat which are the righteous people and the tares which are the wicked people and when we look at parables like that the the parable of the harvest now we begin to get to this part of the bible in matthew where it talks about the day and the hour no one knows the angel not the angels of heaven nor the son of man but the father alone the return of yeshua will happen during the maturation of the wheat and the tares verse 37 for the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of noah and then jesus himself gives us part of this description of the two people groups for as in those days before the flood they who's the they they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day that noah into the ark and they who's the they did not understand until the flood came and took them who's the them all away so will the coming of the son of man be so there are two people groups the wheat and the tares the righteous and the unrighteous and in the days of the coming of the son of man i.e yeshua they will be just like the days of noah where we've got the general world at large who is the they in this passage who are the tares in the mark uh, in the matthew 13 parable of the wheat and the tares and they the world at large are not paying attention to any of the signs or any of the indicators that summer is near using yeshua's own words that the time of Jesus' return is fast approaching. And of course, why not? Because they don't believe in God. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't read the Word. They don't read the Bible. They don't care, and they're unaware. And so they, like um, the analogy given by Yeshua, picked up by Paul, carried on into Peter, is the thief in the night principle that the world at large is like that thief in the night is like that people who get their house broken into and they don't know when the world when the thief is coming but as we begin to realize in this passage that there are wheat along with tares we who are believers are the wheat and so we are likened to noah who entered the ark and we were rescued from the judgment that is going to befall planet earth so within that context of the two people groups and there's this larger context of during this time frame are we talking about the rapture itself 
Are we talking about judgment befalling earth? How is that we are to understand this? The Son of Man is returning. Is he returning in rapture? Or is he returning in retribution? Is he pouring out judgment and um, uh, you know final wrath on the world? Well, um, we're working within that larger context, and so in that we've 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 encountered these questions. And here it is, starting in verse thirty-nine. Um, they didn't understand until something. Uh, I'm sorry, starting in verse forty. At that time, so specifically, here's the question that we've been kind of entertaining on the table. At that time, Yeshua says there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, and one will be left. And then in verse 41, he gives a second analogy. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. And what we found is that this perfectly parallels the uh, notes given to us in the in the parable with the wheat and the tares also. Meaning, in the parable with the wheat and the tares, when we start and look at verse 40, he says, so just as the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, starting verse 41, I guess, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and they will be thrown into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weakening and gnashing of teeth. So in the first section that I've got highlighted on my screen from Matthew 13, the weeds sequentially are gathered first out of his kingdom, and they, the weeds, the wicked, are thrown into the furnace of fire, and in that place there's weakening and gnashing of teeth. And then in verse 43, it's then, sequentially, the righteous will be will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of the Father, the one who has ears, let him hear. So based on that um, sequence, we looked at the notes from that particular pastor, jump over to his page again, uh, Mr. Thomas Ice, um, in his particular blog, which is found on blueletterbible.org. And his conclusion was twofold. One, when we asked the question, when is this time frame and who is taken and who is left? His answer to these questions, and you can go back and watch episode number 245 uh, of my live internet shows to see the answer to his particular interpretation, which I'm summarizing for you tonight. <coughs> Excuse me. His interpretation is of this time frame and who's taken and who's left is twofold. Number one, the time frame given in the Matthew passage that we just uh, read a moment ago, let me take it up here like that, is uh, the time frame of, you, of Yeshua's second coming, not the rapture, but the second coming. So he's destroying a distinction between what he's calling the rapture and the second coming. And he, he puts the second coming at the very end of what is commonly called the seven-year tribulation. Um, for for familiarity's sake, I'm using that term seven-year tribulation, even though I, I don't personally hold to that concept of tri seven-year tribulation. But... Uh, let me find a chart that shows you kind of what's going on. When we talk when we talk about seven year tribulation, which um, we're gonna turn headlong into in my next sections when we get to topic number ten. Uh, uh, what is it? Nine, ten, eleven. Hang on, real quick. Let me just joke. look. Yeah, topic 10, 11, and 12, rapture views, uh, making case for pre-wrath, rapture views, final analysis. So we're gonna jump into that sooner or later. But what we have is second coming is part of a um, 
time frame that's indicated on this particular slide at the far right of the slide. The second coming is at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The tribulation itself is taken up by this entire slice in the middle known as God's wrath. And therefore, by comparison, when we look at rapture, it's at the far left of the chart, reading from left to right. Rapture happens at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. It's known as pre-trib for most Christians, and it takes place pre Rap pre-tribulation, meaning Christians will not go through the wrath of God, the tribulation, which is the entire seven years on this slide. Instead, at the far right, Christians will come back with Christ at his second coming. So the first part of this gentleman's um, answer that we looked at, uh, the pastor Thomas Ice, Pastor Ice, he believes that this time frame here in Matthew right now is talking about the second coming. And therefore, when it talks about, when it asks the questions, who will be taken and who will be left, his answer is that the taken are those who are taken in judgment and the left behind are those who are left behind to inherit the kingdom which is the millennial kingdom which will be ushered in using this slide we can see it this way we've got the seven years written in green we've got the pre-trib uh, pre rapture which will be on the farthest right this isn't exactly what it looks like but just as close enough the uh let me see if I have a better slide. I apologize. There's that's there's that one. There's this, this, this. I'm just sliding, jumping through some slides. Maybe I should just park out on this for a second. Uh, don't look at the farthest left of the screen now. Just look at the bright red part relatively in the middle where it says the tribulation. That's marked out as seven years, uh, broken up into three and a half, three and a half. Notice that the rapture with this arrow pointing up is the only arrow on the slide, on the top of the slide that's pointing up. It's right after the cross there that you can see. So it's labeled the rapture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the tribulation takes place after the rapture sequentially. And then if you keep your eyes moving from left to right, the far the uh, right side of that square known as the tribulation the red part has an arrow pointing down which says second coming and armageddon so in the classic pre-trib pre-millennial viewpoint just like the pastor described rapture takes place out uh, at the beginning of the seven tribulate seven year tribulation and therefore that's when we go up to meet christ in the air and be with him and therefore in that sense taken would be taken away in rapture and left behind might be left behind, as in left out of the rapture sequence. But since he believes that Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 25, the verses that we're looking at are referring to Jesus' second coming, where Jesus comes back down and we, the saints, come back down with him, then he believes that the taken are those who are going to be taken in judgment, like the Mar uh, Matthew 13 Wheat, ter wheat and tares, notice sequentially in the, that passage, the wheat are, uh, the, the tares are taken uh, to be burned first sequentially, and then the whatever's left behind, the, we the wheat are left to inherit the kingdom, which on this slide that you're looking at is the kingdom age. It's kind of a teal blue where it's just his kingdom age a thousand years. So that's his perspective in a nutshell, and we looked at that last week. What I want to do now real quick is finish up Pastor David Guzik's version of this same slice of Matthew, Matthew 24, verse 40-44. We kind of have been kind of dancing around it, but I just want to finish this part and then jump straight into Tim Haig's view on this same section where we're answering the question of kind of the larger context, when is this time frame? Is it rapture or is it second coming? 
and then within that uh, larger um, kind of context, who is taken and who is left. So uh, David Guzik, which he has a commentary found on his website at EnduringWord.com. I've put the link in the description of the video so you can follow that there below of my YouTube videos. He has Jesus cautions his disciples to be ready for an unexpected coming in, in section three. And then we've got the relevant passage that I just read a moment ago, so I'm not going to read through that again. Let's just read his notes. Uh, again, this was rehashing, so I'll read far, fairly quickly. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taking the other left. According to Guzik, as we're going to see, he says, Jesus here pointing, points to curious disappearances, to a catching away of some at the coming of the Son of Man. Notice, right away, Guzik says, Jesus points to curious disappearances to a catching away of some at when the coming of the son of man also described in first thessalonians 4 so he's talking about catching away right that sounds like rapture language and indeed first thessalonians 4 is the classic rapture passage we i'm purposely not just turning to it now because we're going to deal heavily with rapture when we get into the next few topics so right now we're just making ourselves aware of the fact that there's the rapture and then there's the second coming but notice guzik gives an important clue that when we're looking at this topic both from the old testament and the new testament perspective we have to remember that the bible uses this term second coming as if it is synonymous with both rapture and second coming if we were to try and uh, get really nitpicky on the details of is Jesus coming down to catch us and snatch us up to be with him or is he coming do we meet him in the air and that's known as rapture or is he coming back down to planet earth to establish his kingdom is it one event is it two events is it one event with two kind of bookends you know what gives and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment but just kind of wetting your appetite so in that context where David Guzik doesn't say exactly whether he means whether he thinks that this is rapture versus second coming he just labels it second coming but he has, does talk about the disappearance which sounds like rapture language to me he says then quoting france taking as the same verb that's used elsewhere in matthew right chapter 1 chapter 17 chapter 18 and 20 and it implies what to take someone to be with you and therefore here points to the salvation rather than the destruction of the one being taken so whether he's talking about rapture or second coming he definitely takes quoting france that taken here refers to taken in salvation which is the opposite view at least on the verbiage of what the other pastor pastor ice believes he believes remember pastor ice believed that taken refers to the weeds and left behind refers to the uh wheat but in other words the, the uh taken is the unbelievers taken in judgment and left behind are the righteous to inherit the kingdom but Guzik says no, taken using the verb para lambano, and we looked at this last week, so I'll just kind of show you real quick. In Matthew 24, when Jesus says, the flood came and took them all away, speaking of the, the, the flood in Noah's day, he uses a form of the Greek word here, airo, which means, as you can see, Strong's 142, to lift up, to raise up, which corresponds with the flood waters taking people away lifting them up 
and washing them away, washing them off the scene as the floodwaters crashed down. The people were washed away from the location. They were taken in judgment. They were lifted up. They were raised up off the ground because of the water, the flood rising, which also consequently lifted up the ark that Noah was in. Comparatively, when he says in Matthew, two men were in the in the field, one will be taken, he uses a form of this Greek word, para lambano. We looked at Strong's number 3880 when we were looking through Pastor Ice's notes. And this doesn't mean to lift up or to carry away. It means to receive to oneself, to take from, to receive, to take a, a, to take with me. And it's broken up into two words. If I scroll down a little bit more, it's from para 3844, which means close or alongside of. We get our words paralegal, paramedic, um, parachurch, all have that same uh, initial part of the word para, which means close to or alongside of, right? Paralegal, parachurch, para organization, paramedic. Um, para here in Greek, uh, 3880, um, 3484. 3844, close alongside of, and you, you link that up with the Greek word 2983, lambano, which means to aggressively take. And so we have this meaning to aggressively take alongside of oneself. And that's what Guzik is kind of hinting at when he says that this particular word taken, para lambano, para lambano, has to do with this idea of um, aggressively taking one someone to themselves, and he sees that as a indicator that this must be Yeshua taking the believers to himself, and that's where the word "taken" comes in. Instead of just looking at the English, where the flood took them all away, and then one is taken and one is left, and in the flood account, the taken are the wicked, and therefore that other pastor used that to indicate that he believes that taken are the wicked. And he's probably basing it on the Matthew 13 um, wheat and tares parable there. Moving on through Guzik, we see that he continues to say, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Oh, again, at this point in time, we're talking about is this rapture or is this second coming? Uh, he says, since the day and hour of this coming are unknowable, Jesus' followers must be on constant guard for his coming. The... Um, language of Jesus returning at an hour when no one knows for his believers creates what most people believe to be a rapture scenario. Again, this sets up what Guzik kind of teases as a second coming dilemma. And here's the dilemma. And again, it's not truly a dilemma, but we're going to see how Guzik articulates what he's kind of uh, suggesting in kind of jest as a humor. He gives these bullet points. He says, is Yeshua, speaking of Yeshua coming, is it at an unexpected hour or is it positively predicted? And why would he ask that, right? If Jesus clearly said that no one knows the day of the hour, why would there even be the possibility that it's predicted? And the reason he can say that is because when we go back to, let me pull up one of these slides again. When we go back to, I'm jumping through my slides. When we go back to, yes, this is a good enough slide. When we go back to Daniel's prophecies that span through Daniel's book, going all the way back to Daniel chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, fast forwarding to chapter 7 with Daniel's own dream, then chapter 9 with more details of the same slice of prophecy and history, and then moving from chapter 9, just finishing out the rest of the book, 10, 11, 12, uh, 9, 9, 10, 11, and 12, and then the book ends. So 
using Daniel's prophecies of the 70 weeks and all of the details with the coming lawless one, the coming little horn, the coming Antichrist, and all of the details surrounding the Gentile nations that would suppress Israel, and giving us the slice of history that cop that um, uh, fills in details about Israel's um, judgment and redemption and the Gentiles and things like that. We have to remember that Daniel was given a lot of details and within the 70 weeks, he not only is given details, but if you go back and read carefully through starting with say with chapter seven and then uh, jump over to chapter nine and then finish the, the book, you'll find that you're going to give be given days of let me use this slide now you're going to be given days that are marked out from the midpoint of daniel's 70th week which is called by christians the seven-year tribulation this 70th week is marked out by from the midpoint of the week when antichrist is already on the scene because he made a covenant with israel earlier on three and a half years into it at the midpoint at the three and a half year mark Something significant happens. Daniel describes it as this breaking of the covenant at the midpoint. He also describes it as the time when there's going to be this uh, persecution of the saints, the wearing out of the saints, and that this Antichrist is actually given 42 months or a time times and half a time, as it's described earlier in Daniel, right, in Daniel 7 and 9. And then when you keep reading through 10, 11, and 12 of Daniel, you find that the angel who's relaying this information to Daniel tells him that from the timing of the abomination of desolation, which is the midpoint, there will be 1260 days for the rule of the prince. And the prince in this context is not Jesus, but it's instead the false prince, the antichrist right the false christ the one who comes in place of christ who is a pretender of christ and is opposed to christ right which is what his name antichrist uh entails so from that time we've got the rule of the prince being only um 42 months three and a half years 1260 days i'll show you another chart here in a moment that pulls in the book of revelation using the same time frame to um in fact i'll just show it to you now since we're talking about the 1260 days um there we go three and a half years uh or 42 months or 1260 days or a time time and half a times shows up prominently in the book of revelation five different times and each time it unmistakably refers to the second half of the seven-year tribulation or the 70th week of daniel and it's describing the the reign of antichrist when there's going to be what we might today call the new world order in view the eighth beast empire will be raging we will have a time of unparalleled persecution of jews and christians and anyone else who refuses to take the mark of the beast and at the same time the antichrist will be imposing his own mark and setting up his statue and of uh, enforcing worldwide uh, worship of himself the false prophet will be on the scene as well so we've got 42 months is described in revelation 11 1260 days shows up also in revelation 11 with the two witnesses who will be here during that time 1260 days language shows up in revelation 12 where the woman flees into the wilderness to escape the persecution of antichrist and to some measure she has spared a lot of that persecution and we're going somewhere with this little side rabbit so don't lose sight of the fact that we're talking about is this Yeshua's rapture or Yeshua's second coming and who is taken and who is left? We're in this three and a half year slice when we could be looking at rapture, which of course 
would disrupt the whole picture if we're talking about a pre-trib rapture, but if we're not talking about pre-trib, then this kind of fits uh, with the language. Time, times, and half a time shows up in Revelation 12 also, where the woman is given two wings to fly into the uh, fly into the desert to flee from the serpent who's trying to destroy her, which in Revelation 12 is um, Satan incarnate, the Antichrist. So time, times, and half a time. And then 42 months language shows up in the next chapter of Revelation, uh, chapter 13, where it's talking about, and here's the part that I'm really honing in on. The beast, who is the Antichrist, is given authority to exercise this uh, persecution, this authority on earth for about 42 months. To, he makes war on the saints and, and to try and conquer them. So going back over to the chart right there. Nope, not that one. Uh, this one. The 1260 days beginning at the midpoint of the week is what was given to Daniel as the rule of the prince, i.e. the time period, the 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days, time, times, and half a time. They all say the same thing, same time frame. And they're given to Daniel specifically beginning at the midpoint, which is the second half of the 70th week. So follow me for a moment. If that was given by uh, given by the angel to Daniel, and then there's some other details where we see in this chart the 1290 days until the destruction of the prince, which is a month, a prophetic month after, so 30 days after the 1260 days, and then tacked on the end of that, we have an extra 45 days after the 30 days, which equals from the midpoint 1335 days until when? The rule of Christ and the ushering in of his kingdom. So notice, if we follow Daniel's timing using the days, which were specifically given him, then how can Jesus say that no man knows the day of his coming? Are you following what I'm saying here? If the coming, the second coming of Christ, is the time when he ushers in the kingdom, then no, we're not in the dark. We absolutely can know the day of his return, or I should say at least the day when the kingdom, when the rule of the prince ends, which is at 1260 days and we can know the day when he will meet his destruction at the battle of armageddon which is yeshua returning from heaven with the armies clothed in white and riding on white horses in the book of revelation around chapter uh, 16 17 18 19 20 somewhere in that uh, range we can know that and according to daniel we can know when the rule of christ will be set up as his in the millennial kingdom which is 1335 days so how can yeshua say that no one knows the day of the hour ah let's go back to guzik and pick up the um discussion is it what's he mean what does he mean when he say it is it at an unexpected hour or is it positively predicted we're talking about the return of christ and then he asked a second kind of cryptic bullet point is it business as usual or worldwide cataclysm because remember Yeshua said that as it was in the days of Noah, what are people doing in the days of Noah? Eating, drinking, marrying, giving marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, until the day. So if Antichrist is on the scene unleashing his fury and there's tribulation and there's distress and there's earthquakes and there's famines and there's pestilence and there's intense tribulation, how can that be business as usual? How can that be Eating and drinking and marrying, giving in marriage, peace, peace, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, okay, again, we're working with this idea that there could be and likely is two aspects to Jesus' second coming. And one of those aspects is a book in that we're going to call Rapture. So I'll show you another slide in a moment. And the other aspect is a book in that we're going to call Second Coming. And then his final uh, bullet point 
<coughs> excuse me is it and watch this he, he jumps headlong into it is it meeting him in the air like first thessalonians 4 or is he coming with the with the saints in Zechariah 14:5? So here is now his answer to his own fake dilemma. He says William Barclay describes this is Guzik speaking one aspect of the difficulty here that the it the second coming of Christ is actually in two sections and they seem to contradict each other. Each other the first verses verses 32 to 35 of Matthew 24 seem to indicate that as a man can tell by the signs of nature when summer is is on the way so he can also tell by the signs of the world when the second coming is on the way remember yeshua said it'll happen like a thief in the night but wait a minute there are two people groups when we get to paul's thessalonian letters we're going to see this more um more sharply that there are people who are of the average uh, uh, they're, they're unbelievers. They're the weeds. They're of the world. They're not looking for the second coming. So the, for, for them, primarily, the second coming will come like a thief in the night. But for those of us who are believers, who are the <clears throat> the the um, wheat in the Yeshua's Matthew 13 parable, the wheat and tares, we're the believers. Paul says that, that they will not that day, and he's speaking of the second coming, the parousia in the Greek, that day will not overtake us like a thief in the night. So it will come like a thief in the night, but only for those who are not believers, only for those who are not looking. So continuing with Guzik, he says the second section of verses in Matthew 24, 36 to 41 says quite definitely that no one knows the time of the second coming, not the angels, not even Jesus himself, but only God. And again, going to that uh, slice of uh, that passage here, the chart in Daniel. Daniel was given that starting at the midpoint of the week, there'd be 1260 days from the midpoint to the rule of the prince, right? How long is 1260 days? We're talking about prophetic years, by the way. We're not talking about normal Gregorian calendar days that we would see on our calendar, but we have to go back to ancient Israel's calendar, which was a lunisolar calendar that was charted off by where the months were basically 30 days, so what we call a biblical month or a prophetic month. So each month had 30 days, not like today where we have alternate 30 and 31. So that's where we get the 1260 days, 42 months, uh, three and a half years, time, times and a half a time. Well, if Yeshua said to his disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that he himself didn't know the day or the hour, not the angels, not the Son of Man, well then, obviously, and I hope you're seeing this, okay, so just follow along with me. I am not date setting. I'm not saying that, hey, guess what, everybody? I have figured out the one and only way to absolutely know for sure when Jesus is returning, and I've got it. No. What I am saying is that if we take the language at face value, then Daniel was given the day of Yeshua's return, which would be at the end of the 70th week, 45, uh, 75 days after the end of the 70th week. So the three and a half years runs its course in the 1260 days. That's when Antichrist has his time to persecute people. And so the tribulation could be exactly three and a half years long, but I don't believe it will be. We'll, we'll, talk, we'll deal with that a little bit later on. I, it's going to be cut short by an event and by a sign. But at least he's been given 1260 days, 42 months to have his dominion, have his kind of free reign on planet Earth. The entire tribulation period, I don't believe, will last that long. It'll be actual cut short. The days will be cut short. But the point I'm trying to highlight is that Daniel was given through an angel, no less. 
right? Remember, Jesus said, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, not the Son of Man. So Jesus included himself as not knowing, and he definitely marked out the angels, but wait a minute, an angel in the book of Daniel knew. How is it that that angel in the book of Daniel knew when Jesus was going to come back, but Jesus himself says that no one knows, not even the angels, not even I know. I don't even know. Only, only Papa knows. How is that working out, right? That's where we're trying to resolve this seeming contradiction. In the end, we're going to find it's not a contradiction because there is a way to resolve the 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 uh, seeming contradiction like how can we know exactly to the day like 1260 1290 1335 how can we know to the day and yet jesus says no one knows the day not the angels not even i myself but only my father and uh this uh guzik says uh and that this coming will come upon men with the suddenness of a rainstorm out of a blue sky okay here's the answer to the dilemma according to uh guzik um just go like that because it's easier to, to follow the highlights. He says, the dilemma is resolved by seeing that there are actually two second comings. Now, let me pause. This language of two second comings is a bit controversial for some Christians. There are those in the pre-wrath camp that I hold to who argue and say two comings is not described in the Bible. There's only one what we call Greek word parousia. Some people say parousia. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. Parousia. We'll see this in a moment when we look at Tim Haig's notes. This parousia is the coming of Messiah that's foretold in the Old Testament. Right? Daniel chapter 7. He's watching the visions, and one like the Son of Man, coming on the clouds, approaches the Ancient of Days. And there's only one of those events that's given. There's not two. Likewise, when you read through the New Testament passages, Yeshua describes his return in singular language, the coming. Even the disciples asking the question in Matthew chapter 24 at the very beginning, starting in verse 3, said, What is the sign of the end of the age? The sign of your coming singular end of the end of the age i'll just turn to it in case you don't remember so that we can see this uh jump right back up to the top here uh right here disciples ask us master tell us when will these things happen right yeshua describes the destruction of the temple and the overturning of all the stones when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your what your coming and of the end of the age. So, based on that um, question there, and if I were to jump all the way back up to the top here of the uh, passage as well, using the Greek, give me a moment, looking at verse 3, um, right here, uh, the Greek word we can see here is uh, parousias, which is rooted in the Greek word Strong's number 3952, which is translated as coming. But what I want you to see here, let me just um, uh, click on... No, I don't want to click on it, but I just want you to highlight it there. The NF, the NGFS is the noun in the genitive feminine singular. That's what the NGFS morphology means right, down, right there. Uh, this word parousias... The, which is translated as coming. The coming, um, I'm sorry. What is the, yeah, the sign of your coming? Um, what is the sign of your coming? This tool that I'm using, wow, didn't want to do that. This tool that I'm using shows that it is a noun in the genitive form, right? Um, coming, as it, meaning it's a participle that's playing the part of a noun, the sign of your coming. Normally, the word coming there is a 
uh, a, a verb, right? A, a participle in the in the um, um, present participle, right? Present continuous form of the verb uh, coming, come plus ing. And but in the sentence, when the disciple said, "What is the sign of your coming?" The way the sentence lays out from subject verb and uh, an object to the very end, the coming is playing the part of a noun, right? Meaning. What we when a when a, a participle turns into playing the part of a noun, we call that genitive. So noun, uh, it's I'm sorry, uh, not um, is it noun? Give me a second. Yeah, noun, genitive, feminine, singular. Let me just click on it to make sure because uh, it's going to give me the nfsg in i'm sorry nominative i said noun nominative nominative well yes yeah, kind of noun uh in and then the g is genitive um uh s is a uh, singular i'm sorry neuter let's go back let's try that one more time i want to show you a different slide um let me see if i click on this and what happens i apologize for not having this pulled up earlier uh strong's proceus uh let me see is it going to give me this isn't really the the site I'm looking for. I want to go to um I have a better way of doing this. Matthew 24. Let me just click on the number the verse number. Open up this, click uh, verse 3, go to the Greek, and then from here, if I scroll back down to that same word, this is an easier way to see it. Then I'll get myself in trouble. When will it happen and what will be the sign of your, here we go. Now we can see it right here. The sign of your coming. Um, so now we can see all the words there. We have a parousias in the Greek. We have a noun, genitive, feminine, singular. You can see right there. That's That, that, that way I don't have to guess. So a noun in the genitive form. Again, normally a, a verb, but playing the part of a noun now. A noun in a genitive form. Uh, feminine, singular. And the whole point of looking this Greek word up is that you're, I'm showing you that it's in the singular. Which means that when Guzik says um, the dilemma is resolved by saying that there are actually two second comings. This is a bit controversial to say that there are two comings because there's nowhere in the New Testament where the word prosia is referred to in the plural, at least if I can remember, um, to refer to Yeshua coming twice to planet Earth. So instead, let's keep reading this and I'll show you a, a, a bit of a better way to resolve this. He says, there are two comings. One is on the air, is in the air for the church commonly known, uh, Guzik says, as the rapture and the other is to the world coming with the, ch with the church, commonly known as the second coming of Jesus. So now let me jump to another slide here. And we kind of hinted at this earlier. So we're talking about two events that are described by some people as two comings, two parousias, but I think that the better way to look at this event is one single event, but two bookends. One event known as the return of Christ or the second coming of Christ, but has these two bookends or aspects to it, meaning that there's a duration. It's not just one single um, instantaneous event where Yeshua drops down to planet Earth, snatches us up to be in the clouds, and then we go up for a brief moment, catch our breath, get our new bodies, and, and then plunge right back down to planet Earth again for him to execute all of his second coming judgment, etc., etc. I believe that there truly is a rapture part, which is the first bookend on the left side of any chart that you're going to be looking at. That would be rapture. That happens where we go, that's where we go up to meet 
Messiah in the air. We get our resurrected bodies. If you are dead, then you're raised from the dead first. Remember, Paul talked about in both uh, Corinthians as well as in the uh, Thessalonians that the dead in Christ will be raised first. In the in the Corinthians passage, he describes that this is going to be this mystery where the um, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So we've got the rapture taking place where the believers go up to meet the Lord in the air. That's the first bookend, and then there's this distance between the a time frame a chronology of events that allows for there to be a distance between the rapture and the second coming which in which chart in this chart right here with the pre classic pre-trib notice that the time distance between the chronology whatever the time the distance between the rapture on the far left of your screen where the two black and white arrow the black and white arrow are kissing each other and the black arrow pointing down on the far right of your screen where it says second coming. Notice the time frame is a full seven years. That's what this uh, uh, teaching suggests. The, the view that I hold to the pre-wrath has a shorter time frame. Notice the two black and white, the black and white, the black and white arrow known as pre-wrath rapture are kissing each other about halfway through the second half of the 70th week known as pre-wrath rapture and then there's the god's wrath slice which is uh probably i mean i don't know half of the three and a half years so you know a year and uh, and some time and then at the far right it doesn't show the arrow coming back down but it would be there if, if i were to alter this chart a little bit that's where we would have the true second coming at the far right and then in this particular chart we still have the seven-year slice known as god's wrath according to post-trib but the second coming in the post-trib rapture the yeah kiss each other at the farthest right meaning there's absolutely no time elapsed between these two what i'm calling bookends so they happen basically they overlap with one another simultaneously but going back to this chart i believe there are two events there's rapture on the left in the blue and there's second coming on the right and i don't call these two second comings i like the name of this chart where it says two events rapture and second coming and i'll just read the chart now for you briefly in the rapture we have the translation of the believers so we go up the saints go to heaven the earth is not judged the rapture is imminent i would disagree with the word imminent there up until a point when all the signs have exhausted themselves and the tribulation has been cut short then the rapture is imminent but until that point comes time i'm not going to use the word imminency i'm going to use the word expectancy or urgency either one fits my theology and what i believe the bible actually teaches imminency is not truly um uh the right word to use until we get well into the tribulation and then you should have said after the tribulation of those days then the sun will be dark and the moon will be will not shine it'll turn to blood the stars will fall from the sky there'll be a great earthquake things like that and then they'll see the sign of the son of man in the sky etc etc so only then will there be imminency after the what um john calls in revelation the sixth seal is broken per revelation chapter six so we've got imminent looking at this chapter uh, this chart on the rapture I'm on, I'm on the left side of the chart for those of you who are looking at this chart with me um the rapture affects believers only the rapture is before the day of the of the day of wrath the, the rapture has no reference to satan the rapture is where jesus comes in the air the rapture is where he comes for capital f-o-r his bride the rapture only is that only the saints see him i don't know if i fully agree with that only the saints see him during the rapture i think everybody on earth will actually see him but 
only the only the saints will actually be caught up but i think the wicked will actually see him then but i can't be dogmatic there uh, i'll tell you why uh, when we get to rapture topic uh next time uh and then finally on the fire uh, the bottom of this chart on the left side under rapture we have the tribulation begins with the rapture so i do believe that the rapture triggers it says tribulation here but instead of saying tribulation i believe that the rapture triggers the wrath of god so this is going to be an important distinction that i make i'm not getting into it right now but according to the pre-trib uh rapture the tribulation and the wrath of god are the same event and they run the entire seven years and therefore the tribulation is triggered by the rapture i believe in that some of that terminology that one triggers another but i don't call the time frame of the seven years tribulation so when we look at the second side of this chart where it says second coming by contrast to many of the things i just read on the left side look what happens at the second coming there's no translation involved right the tri the saints don't go up the saints instead are going the opposite direction they are returning to the earth right big difference the earth is judged right as opposed to not judged uh, his return is not imminent, and this is a good point to highlight on that Daniel indeed was given that there are 1260 days from the midpoint to the end of the of the kind of the the um uh, the era of the Antichrist, not his destruction, but at least the era. His rule is at least for 42 months, and there's three and a half years until the. Uh, bringing in of uh or 30 days after that 1290 days where we finally do have the destruction of the of, of the antichrist right he he and the um false prophet are thrown alive into lake of fire etc etc that type of language given to us in the book of revelation around chapter 20 or so 19 or 20 and then the um yeshua returns to set up his second kingdom his second kingdom his his well his his millennial kingdom the, the physical kingdom at the end of the 1335 days given to the book of daniel so based on those days that were given by an angel in the book of daniel even though yeshua said no one knows not even the angels of heaven so this instantly tells us that i believe that there are two events that or two bookends that we must be dealing with here so we're talking about who's taken and who's left well we're getting to that all right i'm working my way towards that well if the event is not imminent that means it must be known according to the book of daniel and then look it affects all men on earth that's the taken and left concept who's taken well we're working towards that so just follow with me um the second coming affects all men on earth and the second coming concludes the day of wrath or wraps up the the, the day uh the the 70th week of daniel the final seven years that's where the tw the um seven years come to an end with the second coming right around the either the the um 1260 days or the 1290 days or the 1335 either way you're still looking at a dip a time difference between um one and 75 days which isn't a lot of time um the second coming is where satan is bound just before the physical millennium right we're talking revelation chapter 20 now uh the second coming is where jesus comes to the earth right now we're thinking about zechariah chapter 14 language where yeshua's i'm sorry zechariah chapter 12 or 13 or 14 somewhere around there 12 13 14 i think it actually is 14 where his feet touch the mount of olives it splits into etc etc all that language in uh revelation the lamb is seen standing on mount zion with 144,000. that's right around chapter 16 17 18 somewhere in that range um so we're talking about yeshua physically coming to earth in the second coming as opposed to him merely meeting us in the air and not touching down 
during the rapture. See the difference? Uh, and in the second coming, he comes with, capital W-I-T-H, as opposed to coming for in the rapture. He comes back with us instead of for us in the second coming. Uh, again, read the book of Revelation around chapter uh, 17, 18, 19, 20. And then in the second coming, every eye will see him, according to language that shows up in other places. Um, and then in the millennium, the millennium begins at the second coming. So that's the differences between what Guzik just called two comings, but I'm saying it's not best to use the word two comings, two parousias, like we looked at the Greek word parousia or parousia. I would say it would be better to describe it as two events of one coming. So I'm using the bookend principle where we've got kind of like an encyclopedia stack of books and we've got a through z and the a in my little analogy is the rapture and the z is the second coming looking at this slide it's identical nearly to what we just read but some minor differences in details rapture on the left side in yellow jesus comes on or with the clouds right borrowing language that goes all the way back to daniel chapter 7 where he said i'm going to come on the son of man david saw daniel saw coming on the clouds approaching the ancient of days to receive his kingdom so he comes on or with the clouds that clouds language is picked up by yeshua in matthew 24 it's carried over into matthew 26 where he stands before uh caiaphas and he says you are going to see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds um he talks about the son of man coming on the clouds and other places so coming with the clouds coming on the clouds is a common motif um but contrasted to that is when you read into the book of revelation chapter 20 i believe this time or 19 or 18 somewhere i think it could go earlier back as 16 i i apologize for not knowing exactly which chapter it is 16 17 18 that that part of book of revelation has always been a little bit fuzzy to me but i know what happens i just don't know exactly which chapter it is but um the point germane to my study is that the second coming is described where yeshua comes back on a white horse and the um, armies of heaven, it uses that language, armies of heaven are following him also on white horses. Jesus comes on a horse. And the armies of heaven are also on white horses. And it's the description of his coming to destroy the Antichrist at the time of Arm at the Battle of Armageddon, where all of Satan's armies are massed together to do battle with, um, to do battle against Jerusalem and to finally try to wipe her off the map. Jesus comes on a horse which is contrasted with him coming on the clouds in the rapture language. So, in the rapture, Jesus stops in midair, and we meet him. In the second coming, notice this time I'm bouncing back and forth between each um, category, instead of just reading all of them in one shot. Contrast this with Jesus comes completely onto the earth in the second coming. He touches down. His feet touch the ground in the Zechariah passage, and in, J in John's revelation, he sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. So, that corresponds with the second coming. In the rapture uh, aspect or timing or time frame, Jesus brings his people up to himself. And in the second coming, Jesus brings his people down with him. So one popular author said, um, the saints go up and the wrath comes down. All right. Uh, in the rapture, keep going. In the rapture, God's people get their, they get their glorified bodies, right? That's the mystery of the rapture, the mystery of the, 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 um, uh, that was hidden from the Old Testament saints, which kind of, as I interject, when Paul says in Thessalonians that this was a mystery, or in Corinthians, he I can't remember which, which passage where he talks about, behold, I tell you a mystery. I think it might be the Corinthians. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I think that's a Corinthian passage. 
1 Corinthians 15, somewhere around there. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. This mystery that Paul revealed is that when we talk about biblical mysteries, we're talking about something that is known to God alone in its fullness, but hinted at or given at in seminal form or kind of um, what we might call ambiguous fashion or um, 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 a kind of... Um, you know, unclear terms, fuzzy terminology in the Old Testament. So it's it, it's a truth that was hidden from the Old Testament saints, but it is a truth that God knows. So it's not mysterious in the sense that no one can know it. Rather, it's a mystery that was hidden from God, hidden by God from the Old Testament, a time frame in the Old Testament time frame, only to be revealed after the incarnation and the, and the coming of Yeshua into the world. So we've got a, a, a good number of mysteries in the Bible, a handful at least, half a dozen, mystery of Christ, mystery of God, mystery of salvation, mystery of the Gentiles, mystery of the rapture, the mystery of the um, resurrection is that we who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So resurrection itself is not a mystery, it was foretold even in Daniel. Right? Look it up. Daniel was foretold in right around Revelation chapter 12 that the saints will be resurrected. They'll be raised, right? Even Job, Job said, you know, uh, with my flesh, I will see God. Um, so resurrection was foretold in the Old Testament. That's not the mystery, really. The mystery is that included with the bringing in of the Gentiles as part of the mystery of the Gospels, the inclusion of the church, is that there will be some people alive who will be caught up and, and they'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. That's the mystery part of the resurrection. So, resurrection from the dead, not quite mysterious, but being changed as if you were still alive, that's a mystery. So, people get their glorified bodies. Who? Both the, the dead who are resurrected, which wasn't quite a mystery, and those who are alive who will be changed in the moment of the twinkle of an eye. That's the mystery part. So, in the second coming, by contrast, God's people already have glorified bodies as they're riding on white horses. There's no mystery bodies changing, all that stuff transforming, you know, that's not happening at the second coming. That's the language that's given to us in Second Coming. Again, the, the, the reason I brought up the word mystery is because in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, when we look at Jesus' return, that's being foretold by prophets such as Daniel and Isaiah and Zechariah and things like that, because his return is itself a mystery, when we say his, we're talking about the resurrected Messiah and the incarnation of God in flesh returning to planet Earth. All of that is shrouded in mystery, and yet resurrection from our part is not mystery, but the fact that Christ himself was a mystery in the Old Testament. Right? The Messiah, the fact that he would be God on earth, God dwelling among men, that he would come into the world and suffer and die and, and, um, be, and then uh, go to heaven. A lot of that was mystery, mysterious, not language that we could put our finger on in the time period of Nock. Because of that, it makes sense that when we look at the Old Testament, that we're talking about one return. Daniel was shown in Daniel chapter 7, one coming of the Son of Man, approaching on the clouds, approaching the Ancient of Days. There are not two comings, there are not two parousias, there's only one, and that makes sense. But when we zoom in using the lens of the New Testament, and we now realize that, that this one single event known as the coming or the return was actually broken up into two aspects or two bookends, the rapture, which is that really part of the mystery part, and then the second coming, which is not not really quite the mystery part, 
then it makes perfect sense. And one last point I'll make, and then I'll just um, kind of um, begin to wrap this part of my study up. Because we're talking about who is taken and who is left behind. We're talking about this time frame of the end. When we look at these two charts in front of us, rapture on the left in yellow, second coming up on, in blue on the right, the rapture primarily deals with who? The church. Who is the church? It is primarily the Gentile believers in this age, in this um, in this pause that we call the times of the Gentiles, this, this gap that we're living in between the time when Yeshua left planet Earth in the first century and the time when he will return in our century, which I believe it is this century, but I'm not being dogmatic, but it seems like we're fast approaching. So in this gap, the times of the Gentiles that we're living in, this age of the church, when he comes to rapture the believers, it is primarily an event that involves snatching the church out of the jaws of the great tribulation that will be raging on as a result of the intense wrath of Satan incarnate, a.k.a. the Antichrist, uh, which happens during what is what I would call the great tribulation. And so, if you look at this, rapture primarily deals with the church, but by comparison, non uh, redemptive, non-redeemed, unredeemed Israel, right? Unbelieving Israel has to go through the brunt of not just the wrath of Satan, i.e. the tribulation, but they also have to go through the wrath of God that's poured out in the trumpet and bowl judgments that the church is said to be exempt from. So when we talk about who is the church and who is Israel and how is there an overlap using a Venn diagram that looks like a MasterCard logo where two circles come close together, kiss one another, and overlap and create an almond slice in the middle between the two halves, we talk about the church on one side and Israel on the other side, and when we overlap the two, we have the remnant of Israel, which is known as the church, which is the slice of believers in, in our time frame that are made up of Christian, Jewish, uh, Gentiles, I'm sorry, Gentile believers as well as Jewish believers, the rapture deals primarily in that mystery aspect because it deals with snatching away the very mysterious part of the whole Bible, which is the church. The church was a mystery hidden from the Old Testament saints. They couldn't see the Gentiles coming in to Israel as fellow heirs and taking their place right alongside Jewish believers as co equal inheritors of the kingdom of God. They couldn't see that because it was a mystery. It's what's known as by Paul in the book of Ephesians as the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel, or elsewhere he talks about it as the mystery of the Gentiles. It's the bringing of the Gentiles in as um, fellow heirs along with the believing Jewish remnant. That's the mystery. Well, the rapture primarily snatches those folks away. But who does it leave behind? It doesn't only leave behind the wicked of humanity, the Gentiles who do not believe in God, but the rapture leaves behind unbelieving Israel. Yeah, that's right. Unbelieving Israel gets left behind to continue to go through the wrath of Satan, I, a.k.a. the uh, Great Tribulation, but also to go through the wrath of God. They're not exempt from the wrath of God, like the church is exempt from the wrath of God. 
In other words, Israel has to go through the wrath of God in order to be refined and purified and purged of her unbelief so that the remnant that survives through the wrath of God comes out at the end of the week, into the seventh week, ready to look upon him whom they've pierced using the Zechariah language, the Zechariah prophecy in Zechariah 12, 13, 14, and using the language that Yeshua carried in his Matthew 24, uh, all of discourse where he said, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So, they will look upon me, Yeshua says, but only after they've been brought to their knees, right? What did Yeshua say the chapter earlier, Matthew chapter 23, at the very end? Look at you, Israel. I'm paraphrasing. I wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. So I tell you what, your house, meaning the temple, is going to be left to you desolate, and you're not going to see me again until you cry out, Baruch Baba Shemadonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? I'm preaching now. I'm preaching to unbelieving Israel. I'm going to leave, and you're not going to see me again until you're ready to receive me. And when will that happen? Not during the rapture. It won't happen then. They won't be ready yet. They have to go through a lot more crap in order to be purified, in order to bring into what Daniel was was given in chapter 9 of all of these bringing in everlasting righteousness, sealing up the vision, the prophecy, and the anointing of the most holy, and to establishing of the kingdom. So that's not going to happen until the second coming. So that's why we have these two different events that are kind of separated by some events that will take place that are still part of Yeshua's coming. In other words, as we're going to see as we keep moving forward with this, the coming of Messiah is equated with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord events are the coming of Messiah, but he doesn't have to actually be here on planet Earth in order to execute all of these wrath of God, day of the Lord judgments that are marked uh, in the book of Revelation as the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments that we'll read about eventually starting in Revelation chapter 8 and working our way through to about Revelation chapter 16. So let me finish this list. So second coming, I'm sorry, rapture, uh, God's people get their glorified bodies. Second coming, God's people have their glorified bodies. Uh, rapture, judgment, and the wrath of God begin with the seven trumpets and seven bowls as the wicked of mankind are allowed three and a half years. Yeah, I kind of follow along with that. Judgment and the wrath of God begin with the rapture and the seven trumpets, not the seven seals. That goes all the way back to the beginning of the seventh week with the what Yeshua called the beginning of birth pains or the um, uh, the beginning of sorrows in other versions of the Bible, like KJV or something like that. But the second coming has the judgment of wrath being concluded at the Battle of Armageddon and the end of the wicked from this earth, where, keeping mo moving with our uh, chart here, the rapture has the Antichrist and the false prophet are allowed three, three and a half more years, right? Middle of the week, going towards the end of the week. The rapture takes place somewhere around the middle of the week, sometime into the middle of the week, according to what I believe the pre-wrath view teaches, right? So, at least the Antichrist and the false prophet are allowed 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days, time, times, and half a time, according to what with that chart that we looked at earlier, which was given all the way back in the book of Daniel, but picked up again five more times in the book of Revelation. But then, by comparison, second coming, the Antichrist and false prophet are captured and cast into the lake of fire. The devil's captured and sealed in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. So, in conclusion to this section, um, as we look at David Guzik, finish his, uh, and then I'll show you two more slides, and we'll call it quits for tonight for this particular segment. So, the dilemma is resolved by seeing that there are actually two second comings. This is Guzik speaking. 
I don't believe two comings is the best language. I rather would think that the Bible's talking about one coming, one parousia in the Greek, right? One arrival, but earmarked by a bookend on the front, which we would call rapture, and a bookend on the end that we would better, that we would call second coming. But it's one event known as the second coming. In other passages of the Bible, it's one event known as the Day of the Lord. In other passages, it's one event known as the Day of Christ. It's one event known as the Wrath of God in the book of Revelation. So, it's one coming, going all the way back to Tanakh. One coming, one event, where Daniel saw the, the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days. And yet, because of the mystery aspect, the rapture was hidden from the Old Testament readers which means unbelieving israel today who's not reading the new testament right unrepentant israel uh israel who's in rebellion against jesus so, so we're talking about rabbinic judaism and those forms of judaism who are even interested in religion so we're not talking, we're not talking about secular jews just even the religious jews right orthodox jews etc etc they're still not reading the new testament they're primarily stuck in the Tanakh. So what? They're going to miss the rapture because it's part of that hidden aspect. It's part of that mystery. They're not understanding that the church is part of Israel, been grafted into Israel, right? Romans chapter 11. They don't understand that aspect. So they're going to miss that. They're still in the dark. They're going to be part of that crowd that misses the rapture. And therefore, the, the uh, rapture is going to, uh, that is going to um, happen like a thief in the night and the second coming at the end, unless they... Um, uh, are brought into that time of repentance, they make it through that, they're also going to miss the second coming altogether. So, Guzik tells that this dilemma is solved by the, actually the two uh, comings. He says, the contradictions in Matthew 24 and much of the rest of prophecy are often solved by seeing that there really are two, that there are really references to two returns. But I don't see two returns. I would rather say that there's one return, one parousia, but two bookends. And then he goes on and talks about, uh, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour. Do you not expect? Um, and I've already kind of read that part, so I don't have to um, highlight anything there about the, uh, the, the fact that he's coming in an hour that you do not expect. That language in conclusion, I believe, must be more of a reference to rapture when he's talking about the day, no man knows the day of the hour. That must be rapture because according to Daniel and according to Revelation, we do know that at least the day that Yeshua's second coming takes place, it's either at the end of the 1260 days, at the end of the 1290 days, or at the end of the 1335 days. It's one of those three when the second coming happens. Why? Because Daniel, through an angel, no less, was already given that time frame where we can start from the midpoint of the week and work our way to the end of the 70th week with certainty down to the day. Contrary to what Yeshua said in Matthew, where he says, no man knows the day, not me, and not the angels, only Papa. So this tells me why this tells me that we must be, why we must be dealing with rapture versus second coming. So now that we didn't get to... Um, uh, Tim Haig yet. We'll deal with that next week, but I'll close off. I'll finalize with this chart at the end. Notice, what do we have now? What's the conclusion to our dilemma about taking and left? Jesus says, two will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. And when we look at the Luke rendering, there's two women, two men in the bed. One will be taken, one will be left. What's, what are we to make of this? This chart was supplied by, I think it's uh, what is his name? I can't remember his name, but if I remember it, I'll tell you. But it was a, he's a very well-known Bible, Bible prophecy teacher. And in his teaching, he categorized the, he, he summarized the rapture and the second coming in a very easy to understand language. 
it's a summary of really those two charts that we were looking at earlier, but it uses the taken left verbiage to help us understand the differences. In the rapture, which was part of the mystery that Paul talked about, either in Corinthians or in Thessalonians, I apologize, I don't remember which re which reference it is. It's either 1 Corinthians 15 or it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's one of those two. But I think it's the Thessalonian passage myself. I'll look it up after the study's over. In the rapture, Christians are taken and the wicked are left. Why does he believe that? Because the language, and we're going to see this when we get to Tim Haig, the language suggests that the taken in the context is taken unto rescue, taken unto rapture, taken unto Yeshua to escape the danger. And the taken word is the word, the paralambano word in the Greek is the word used to, to refer to being rescued out of the sphere of danger, Christians are taken and the wicked are left. In other words, Tim LaHaye got it right in that aspect. In the left behind books, those who are left behind are not the Christians. Those who are left behind are those who are the unbelievers. Or to go back to Matthew chapter 13 and, and Jesus' parable there of the wheat and the tares, the left behind are the tares, the weeds. So the rapture has the people taken. By contrast, at the second coming of Christ, according to this chart, the wicked are taken. The wicked are taken, and the Christians are left behind. So notice the difference in the language. At the rapture, Christians are taken and the wicked are left, which means the Matthew 24, 30 through, 30, 30 through 41 or through 42 language where Yeshua is talking about, they'll see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds, gathering, the angels will go forth and gather all the people, and then two people will be in the middle, uh, two people will be separated, one will be taken, one will be left. All of that language, according to this, uh, I think it's John Ankerberg, that's the name that I said I was, the, the Bible teacher who's a well-known uh, end time. Times, uh, Bible teacher John Ankerberg. He did a show where he had two guests, both of them were doctors, and they were talking about the rapture and second coming. And this was the summary of what both of them were trying to emphasize. John Ankerberg, A N K E R B E R G, I believe it's not U R G, but E R G, Ankerberg. Well, the rapture described in Matthew chapter 24 is uses the language of taken and left to indicate that the Christians and believers are taken and the wicked are left behind. But when we look at the details of the second coming, then it's the wicked who are um, taken in judgment and the Christians are left, which means the wheat and the tares, a, a parable given in Matthew uh, 13, where the weeds are gathered together first, chronologically, by the angels and taken off to be burned, and then the uh, uh, the uh, wheat is gathered into the barn sequentially, then that would be an indication of the second coming and not the rapture. So Matthew 13, the, wheat, the parable of the wheat and the tares, is a parable about the second coming versus Matthew chapter 24, which is not a parable. It's a narrative. It's prose. It is a description of actual events. It's not a parable to try to... To, that can only be understood by believers. Rather, uh, it's re it's referring to rapture, and so um, that was just another chart that we'll uh, deal with in time, where it talks about Second uh, Thessalonians, or First Thessalonians, chapter four, um, uh, similar to what, we'll, what we've been talking about. That, but we'll we'll get to that in time. But I'll stop right here.
that'll do it for our look at finally answering the question who's taken and who's left who do i which side do i agree with did i tell you if you didn't catch it i'll just tell you i agree with this slide here i believe that the event spoken of in matthew 24 is rapture and the christians the believers will be taken and the unbelievers will be left so matthew 24 is rapture contrasted with matthew 13 is second coming language believers are uh, i'm sorry the wicked are taken in that regard meaning they're the ones that are dealt with first uh sequentially and they are gathered together so that they can be judged they don't inherit the millennial kingdom and then sequentially second the christians are the ones who are um spared that taken away in judgment as it were they're left behind so that they can these believers can inherit the kingdom of god which is the millennial kingdom so that's my perspective but that'll do it for eschatology a biblical study of end time events these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture at Congregation K. Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well youtube.com forward slash c forward slash tetsay torah ministries if you do hit my website uh my youtube channel there be sure to uh, take notice that i update the uh site essentially daily uploading videos daily make sure then to subscribe hit the bell for notifications leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on and be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles okay just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies. Um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others.
Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. This is a final segment of our hour and a half long study. The first segment was given over to eschatology, a biblical study of end time events, where we're talking about um, the rapture and we're talking about the second coming of Christ and all things related to a view towards the book of Revelation. So if you're interested in that kind of topic, be sure to catch the beginning segment of my hour and a half long teaching. Now we're ready for the final 30 minute teaching, which is a an entirely different topic given over to our my trinitarian studies it's kind of an ongoing um look at the trinitarian as a, trinity as a whole that was begun way back when i had my um uh, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues Trinity, which is now available as its own playlist on my YouTube channel. You can go to my YouTube channel at youtube.com uh, forward slash uh, Torah Ministries, all one word, or just do a Google search for my name, Ariel Hanavi, or Tetze Torah itself, T E T Z E T O R A H. Do a Google search for that, or go to my website at tetzetorah.com and using the cluster of links up in the, up in the very top. Uh, one of the links says like YouTube channel or something like that. So let's turn to the study where we're looking at a verse in the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, verse 23, which is quoted in the NIV on the screen as, I wisdom was appointed from eternity from the beginning before the world began. This is a study where we're contrasting, comparing and contrasting the biblical Unitarian perspective over and against the Trinitarian perspective. I myself am a biblical Trinitarian, so I hold to the view that God is one what, one being, one homoousius, yet three hypostases, three persons, or three, be, not beings, but three not three personalities, not three masks, not three personas. You know, language fails us when we're trying to fill in the blank with what the threes are, but what we can understand now is that God expresses himself as three persons, so that's the language that's best been used or has been commonly used, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that are distinct in their roles and functions. We have this slide that I keep putting on in post-production where there's the uh, ontological trinity where we're describing the being of god the nature of god as one being the what in my clever little description borrowed from james white one what and three who's the what of god is the ontological part of the trinity where we're focusing on the oneness of god but the who's the three who's in james white's clever little saying focuses on what matt slick has termed the economic trinity so we have these two that we're working together with not con not contrasted and they don't contradict but there are differences there's one being but there's three persons so biblical unitarian says no there's only one god and he's the father alone and therefore jesus comes into the scene as the man that was born brought into the world at the time of his birth in the first century there's no such thing as our incarnation there's no such thing as a third person of the holy of the of god known as the holy spirit instead spirit of god is simply god himself who is pure spirit and who is pure holy and therefore that's why he's called holy spirit 
um it's a description of his of his attributes as a spirit and therefore he can impart this spirit to those who believe in him and we get this impartation in in the sense of being filled with the holy spirit or anointed by the holy spirit or filled with the spirit of god etc etc but it's still just one spirit so that's biblical unitarian or this the generic unitarian view proverbs comes into the picture where we're asking the question of when it when the proverb when um solomon wrote the proverbs and he talks about lady wisdom right wisdom as our sister this female known as wisdom is he using personification to refer to an attribute of god or was he prophesying of what would later become known as the incarnation where god took on human flesh not merely in a theophany like he did in the old testament like he showed up as a man in front of abraham and had had a meal with them not where he showed up as the angel of the lord from here and here from from time to time in the old testament but rather a full-blown human being was brought into the world and now even today jesus exists as a human being and he's yet god in the flesh is 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 biblical unitarian agreeing with that perspective when they look at proverbs the answer is no their perspective is that wisdom in proverbs is merely personification and that's it and so when we deal with verses in the new testament where we talk about jesus is the wisdom of god which we're looking at what do we make of that well according to them this is just personification language well I don't think that that's the best way, the complete way to understand this passage, although what I'm working towards is this idea that in Trinitarian circles, such as the ones that I um, move in and around, <coughs> in and among, as a Trinitarian who is dialoguing with Unitarians on an everyday basis, sometimes through email or through my YouTube comments and things like that, Biblical Unitarians watch my videos and they ask me questions, sometimes they are open to hearing what I have to say and consider it. Other times they're just there to troll me and to try and um, derail my uh, teaching and to dissuade anyone from, from believing in the Trinitarian concept. But what I've come to learn is that as Trinitarians, many Trinitarians agree with the biblical Unitarian aspect that Proverbs is, simp is merely personification, and that's all. But they still do believe that Jesus is God incarnate. They just believe that when it came to the book of Proverbs, it was just personification. That was all that was going on. That's one group of Trinitarian beliefs. There's another group of Trinitarians who believe that, no, actually, Proverbs is talking about Jesus incarnate, so that it is a pre-incarnate view of god in flesh it's not just personification it goes it takes it one step further and it's in that camp that we're now introducing this comparison and parallel not just to wisdom in proverbs but to the logos in the book of john logos l-o-g-o-s pronounced logos or logos by other um christians but i i choose to uh pronounce the greek word logos because the two letters are omicrons there's no um omega in there so there's two letter o's in the greek there's an a what like the o in doctor and it's the one that looks like the letter o that's pronounced aw and then there's another letter for o that looks almost like a, a kind of a ballooned w um or sometimes it looks almost like um uh two uh like an arrow that's uh circling back around in and of itself and it's known as the letter omega so you've seen alpha and omega. Well, omega is pronounced just like hearing it, O. So instead of logos or logos or something like that, logos, I pronounce it logos because both of the O's are omicrons. All right, that's my understanding. Okay, so let's 
pick up my reading was first by um my study first by looking at some of the relative passages or relative words that i've been bringing into my study and then i'll jump headlong into it in proverbs 8 starting in verse 22 even though 23 is the verse in focus we have the lord possessing me this is wisdom speaking the lord possessing me at the beginning of his way before his works of old so this gives the time frame and i talked about this in the past so this is summary that the lord possessed me the the hebrew word is kanani possessed me when reshit and um before his works of old um mifa alive meats before his works and these parallel poetic parallel uh, time markers indicate that wisdom was with God outside of the uh, creation account. Meaning, I, I mentioned last week that in the Hebrew mindset, there are really two spheres of existence when we're talking about time. Uh, and then there's two when we're actually talking about time. When we're talking about time, we have the age, we have this age and the age to come. Meaning, the time that we live in here in now is this age, and the age to come is what rabbis would refer to as the millennium, meaning the olam hazeh is this age, and the olam haba is the age to come. But when we when we zoom out and look at the ultimate place where God lives, the sphere or the dimension that God lives in, before the world was created, before the universe was created, we call that eternity in English. And so now we've got these two chambers or categories and I put this slide or put this uh, graphic up on the screen in post production that you're probably looking at now but you can't see it now if you're if you're sitting in the in the Skype class with me like some of the other students are. But basically it's a baby blue line drawn from vertically from top to bottom and it separates on the left side is creator and underneath this label creator we have God uh, we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So God the Father, God the Son, Holy God the Holy Spirit. They are all under the label of Creator, who live in the sphere or dimension known as eternity. And then on the right side of the graphic that you can't see, so I'm describing it for you for those of you who are in the live class. On the right side, you've got this label that simply says creation. And underneath that label, it simply says everything else. And so with these two categories from the Hebrew world perspective, we've got the creator who lives in this sphere or dimension known as eternity, which is God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you've got the creation, which is the universe and the earth and everything else that lives on the right side in what we today call time. Well, where does wisdom fit in? Wisdom, according to the Hebrew mindset, based on these words here, you know, Adonai Kanani Reshit Darkot Kedem Mipha Alive Me'atz, he, or wisdom, she, dwelled in the eternity aspect. She's on the left side of the chart that was on, that's on the screen, or was on the screen earlier, if it disappeared already. Going from verse 22 to 23, from everlasting, Me'olam Nisachti, I was established again the word everlasting there meolam the olam and the hebrew word mindset is the eternity aspect it's this idea that in the beginning breshit bara elohim in the beginning god created well when was breshit when was rosh well according to verse 23 from the beginning we have again here some poetic parallelism going on with the word everlasting as meolam and beginning being merosh, which was the same word which was up above in verse 22 with um, kanini reshit. The word reshit, which is right here, is the same word as 
Me-rosh, right there. It's the same root word in the Greek. I'm sorry, in the Hebrew. So it's translated as uh, beginning in um, both versions. And so wisdom is saying that from everlasting I was established, meaning I take it that wisdom didn't have a beginning. Wisdom is one of God's everlasting eternal attributes that he cannot do without. He cannot exist without. And then continuing from verse 23, pulling in verse 24 and um, 25, the writer to the book of Proverbs, which we we say is Solomon, which I've been uh, humorously calling the proverbist, he says that when there were no depths, when no depths were brought forth, and he uses this word, this verb, uh, brought forth, the um, Hebrew word is uh, cholalti. When, when before the depths were brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. So he's talking about the creation account, obviously. And then in verse 25, he continues this poetic parallelism using the Genesis account. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. And the verbal phrase uh, brought forth, let me go like that so I don't get myself in trouble. The uh, the verbal phrase uh, brought forth, verbal clause at the end, they're, they're brought forth in verse 25, is the same Hebrew word that we saw in verse 24, holoti. Uh, and so what we're dealing with is wisdom confessing and describing herself as a part of God's eternal attributes, a part of God's um toolkit as it were of um of agency tools that he used to create the world of course as we're with a view towards the logos of john john pictures the logos also as this agency this tool the word of god that god utilized at the creation account right remember in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and the earth was unformed and void and darkness was on the face of the and the spirit of god hovered on, on this on the surface of the waters and then what's the very next verse say verse three and god said right so how did god create he spoke god said elohim and god said let there be light and there was light this hebrew word and god said or order i'm sorry yahi and god said i'm sorry and god said which is rooted in the hebrew word amar um to speak or to say this is the uh, narrative version that uh, uh moshe used when he's writing the book of genesis to describe the agency aspect or tool or attribute that god used to create the world and yet later on in the tanakh the word of god is given personification is given its own identity as a separate aspect of god that can be dispatched by god to perform his actions just like the word of god is used uh, by God to speak the universe and the world into existence, John picks up on the aspect of the Word of God being its own unique person. And indeed, later on in this chapter of John, chapter 1, he uh, identifies the Word of God, the Logos in the Greek, which corresponds to the Hebrew word um, Amar. He, course, he identifies this Logos as uh, one who uh, be- took flesh and dwelt among us. So, it's within that aspect of wisdom uh, being personified uh, alongside of um, God, uh, God's other attributes, like the Word of God, the arm of the Lord, things like that. God has feet. He's given these kind of anthropomorphic descriptions all throughout the New of the Old Testament. But because he, if he's spirit, you can't see him. He doesn't really have body parts. But he has a mouth that speaks the word. He has a right arm that does his his bidding. He has feet that people can see. Um, among these descriptions, we ask. Did God have to create wisdom? 
Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was created before the creation of the world, and Jesus becomes the agent of God that's utilized by God to create the rest of the world. Therefore, they can have their cake and eat it too by saying that Jesus, God is the creator, and yet Jesus is the creator because Jesus is the agent of creation. Biblical Unitarian and Unitarianism says no. We don't believe that Jesus was created by God. We reject Arianism. We reject modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses' version of Arianism. We say no. Wisdom always existed with God. So then we have this slide that I was uh, showing you. Where is it? This one that I showed you where this particular uh, YouTube video that I put a link to in last week's Biblical Unitarian uh, study. So go back to last week for this study. Not the very the, the, the entire uh, live internet studies, but just the study on the Biblical Unitarian versus Biblical Trinitarian. So go to my YouTube channel, look for the thumbnails that just deal with uh, a Trinitarian response to Biblical Unitarianism, Proverbs chapter 8. And you'll see the link to the video where I pulled this screenshot from, where the Jehovah's Witnesses back themselves into a, a trap that they set for themselves by saying, yes, God had to create wisdom, which equals Jesus which is equated with Jesus being created. So, okay, do you believe that Jehovah's, Jehovah lacked wisdom at some point in time because he had to create it? If the Jehovah's Witness, who is the JW on my slide here, if he says yes, well, then this leads to the conclusion that so God isn't all wise, right? He had to create wisdom. It came along at some point in time. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses say, uh, no, Jehovah is all wise. So they kind of backpedal a little bit and switch over to no to the answer to the first question. Is Did Jehovah lack wisdom at some point? Oh, no, no, no. He didn't lack wisdom. Well, then if Jesus is wisdom, well, then, then Jesus was not created, which leads to the conclusion that Jesus is eternal, right? Is that what you're saying, Jehovah's Witnesses? And then they're like, uh, no. So they, they paint themselves into a dilemma by inferring that wisdom is Jesus and he had to be created before God could create the world. So that's where the dilemma. The way we resolve this is just understanding that similar to Biblical Unitarian, wisdom is eternal, yes, and wisdom is as spoken of as personification and wisdom is Jesus. All three can be true. We just have to take out that aspect of wisdom being created. And that's why I'm showing you this slide. So now with that as our backdrop, let's jump over to my commentary and begin to um, finish where I left off. This is kind of where I um, uh, segue to where, where I, I stopped reading. We last week we read, I read, um, the Gospel of John portrays the Logos as the pre-existent and divine Word of God who was with God from the beginning and was instrumental in creation. And now we pick up my reading. These are my own notes, which are not available anywhere online. They're exclusive to these uh, YouTube videos, so you have to watch the YouTube videos to get this particular short essay. In John 1, 1 through 18, the Logos is identified with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is depicted, and we're going to finish this tonight because there's just four uh paragraphs to this particular section so we can move into the we're going to eventually look at the greek septuagint of this particular passage in proverbs because that's really what the study is about i just brought in the john logos passage to show us the parallels um so logos is identified as jesus christ who is the son of god who is depicted as eternal word made flesh just as proverbs personifies wisdom these are my own thoughts john's gospel personifies logos as a distinct person who exists in intimate relationship with god the father and we have to remember that 
when we pull up the book of John chapter 1, we've got the English over here on the um, left here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice, in the English, we have that word beginning again that we saw in both Genesis chapter 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we saw it again also in the book of Proverbs, where the wisdom says that I God possessed me in the beginning. So in every case in the Hebrew, it's the same Hebrew word, um, breshit or reshit or merosh um, or something like that. Yet in the Greek, it's also the same Greek word now that we're going to see here. If I turn over to the Greek, the Greek, the Greek says, in arche en halagos, kai halagos en proston theon kai theos en halagos. And the Greek word that is chosen to represent reshit uh, from, uh, from the English in the beginning is arche. So in the beginning, in arche en halagos, in the beginning, uh, was the word. And so John, like a typical good Hebrew boy who went to synagogue and studied his Hebrew Bible, he realized that Reshit or Rosh is a uh, parallel to Olam, which is the category or uh, dimension known as eternity. And therefore, he places the Logos outside of time. That's the point I'm trying to make, is this Logos existed from eternity, which is what the Greek word arche, which corresponds to the Hebrew word um, rosh, the root word rosh, or uh, reshit, or meirosh, or bereshit in Genesis, something along those lines. So, it's John who says that in the beginning was this word, and the word was with God, and what God was, the word was, right? God, the word was full deity. The word was divine. The word had deity right alongside of God, and yet was with God, and yet was God, right? So, it's within that uh, view that we can understand that the Logos is a distinct person who exists in intimate relationship with God the Father from eternity past, right? The Word wasn't created at some point in time any more than wisdom was created at some point in time. Wisdom is an eternal attribute of God that He cannot be without because He is immutable, unchangeable, and therefore He lacks nothing. He doesn't have to create wisdom any more than He has to create the Word, like the Jehovah's Witnesses slash Arians teach, in order to bring the universe into existence. The Word is eternal. Just like wisdom is eternal, just like God himself is eternal. So, let's keep reading. This parallel between the uh, wisdom, the chokhmah in the Hebrew uh, of, um, of per uh, Proverbs and the logos in the Greek of John suggests a Trinitarian understanding of wisdom as a person who was where? With God in the beginning. And when we say beginning, we're talking about not the beginning of the creation of that thing itself, but rather at the beginning of the creation of everything else in my previous uh, uh, graphic that you saw on the screen. The beginning meaning outside of time and therefore not in need of being created. Let's keep reading. I want to finish this part uh, tonight. We've got about seven minutes left in this study. The Logos is described, I say, as being, quote, with, in quote, with God, with with God, quote-unquote, John 1, 1, like I just showed you there, right? Being with God, which gives us the aspect of being alongside of God, prostantheon, face-to-face is what the Greek says, literally face-to-face, -face, but we just translate it as with. In the beginning, the word was with, the word was with, in the beginning was the word, right? Was the word. 
and the word was with God. So there's both aspects. There's the mystery of the word being with God, face to face with God, but there's the aspect of the word being God. So it's the mystery that is revealed in the incarnation that Jesus is truly God and yet truly human. And that's why the Logos is described as being with God in one one, indicating what? A distinct coexistence within the Godhead, meaning we've got God the Father who is an eternal Father, and yet the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, meaning there was never, never a time, according to the uh, normative understanding of the words of the labels Father and Son, there was never a time when the Father was not a Father, and there was never a time when the Son was not a Son, because by the very use of the languages that we employ, Father implies offspring, and son implies parents. So, the son must have a parent, at least one, and the father must have at least, must have offspring, at least one. So, God the Father, who is immutable, unchangeable, and eternal in his nature and attributes, has always been a father. And the son, who is also in his eternal state, always a son, unchangeable, has always been the son. Therefore, the word has always been a part of God and always with God. So, a part of God and with God. I continue. Similarly, Proverbs 8.30, which we didn't read, but um, we can pull into our study here, speaks of wisdom being, quote, beside or beside him, often understood as God, meaning the him is God. So, uh, within the context of the book of Proverbs, that's what we're talking about, wisdom being a part of God or being alongside of God, both at the same time. And this being beside God is during when? The creation process. And this is why this is strong parallel to the Logos in the book of John, because of uh, when we go back over to John and read in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning face to face with God. And then in verse 3, John says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Panta di autu, egeneto chai chorus autu, egeneto ude. Hen ha gegonin. And this language of nothing came into being except through him. Well, that's referring to all of creation, all of the universe, all of the created order came into being through this word of God, who is the one that's in uh, subject that right, right at the moment, right? He is the immediate. Um, uh, uh, precedent or the immediate i'm sorry not president the immediate um uh topic subject uh that was quoted in verse two and uh also in verse one so the subject that was immediately referred to when it says all things came to being through him i've heard some non-trinitarians say well it's talking about god all things came to being through him and apart from him nothing came to being that has come to being it's talking about god but that can't be because the he in verse two is the word and the he in verse four is Yeshua, right? In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, darkness does not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about that light so that all might believe through him. He was not that light, but he came to testify about the light. So the context of the rest of John tells us that we're talking about Jesus, i.e., this word, who when we finally get down to verse, um, uh, let me get down to verse. 
I should, I really should uh, get down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? So it is John who's giving us this revelation in this uh, passage of John. Uh, who's given us this revelation about the word that was alongside with God in eternity and yet be took on human flesh in the incarnation and became the Jesus who dwelt among us that we saw and beheld. It's this same word who was in verse 2 was in the beginning with God. It's this same word who in verse 3, it sounds like I'm preaching again, right? Who John says, all things came into being through him. So it's wisdom that's given this role in the book of Proverbs, where everything was created through wisdom. And that's why we have the parallel between wisdom and the logos in my particular um, commentary. Let's keep reading. So um, this highlights, like I say, the close relationship and unity of wisdom with God, mirroring the Trinitarian concept of the eternal Son's existence with the Father, and uh, like I say, also the eternal ex the existence of the um, uh, the eternal Word being uh, existent alongside God as well. I go on to say, moreover, both Proverbs eight twenty three and John one three affirm the role of wisdom slash logos in creation. In Proverbs eight. It depicts wisdom as present at the formation of the earth, while John 1 states that through the Logos, quote, and we just read this earlier, all things came into being. So what we're using is the creation account that was given by Moses all the way back in the book of Genesis, but back there, there was mystery. Moses said nothing of the Logos. Right? He didn't use the word logos in the Hebrew. Although, if we turn to the Greek, I believe that we do have logos. Uh, or we have some form of a word that would the Greek would use to refer to this uh, aspect of God speaking, somewhere along the lines. But most, Moshe definitely gives us, at least in the English we can see this, in the Hebrew you, you have to know which Hebrew word you're looking for. But in the English it says, and God said, let there be light. And then from that point forward in the narrative, there's a lot of speaking that, that's going on between God and the creation. Well, as, the, as I mentioned earlier, the Hebrews developed the theology of God and un, trying to understand and um, more of the particulars of the nature of God in the creation account, and I'm drawing my study to a close with this, by the way, because we're running out of time. God utilizes his aspect or attribute of speaking, and it becomes personified in the word of God. Well, all things came into, cre into creation through the spoken word of God. Nothing lacked um, uh, creation. Nothing lacked uh, being brought into existence through the word of God. And yet, God never says in the creation account that he spoke his own word into existence. And God said, let there be the word. And there was the word. It doesn't work that way. Or it doesn't, God doesn't wiggle his nose or blink his eyes or fold his, uh, cross his hands and, and nod his, his head, you know, like kind of I dream of genie fashion or something or bewitched fashion. He doesn't go dee 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 and, you know, the, or, uh, and, and the word comes into existence. Like Jehovah's Witches, Witnesses want to believe that God whipped up the word of God as a construct, as a thing, as a creature, and then that creature created everything else, right? Me, in, in, that, in that aspect, me and um, a biblical Unitarian, we are in full agreement, right? Nope, that's not the way the word came into the picture. In fact, if you ask, how do the biblical Unitarians and the Unitarians interpret John 1.1? 1, 1, I'll just give you the real quick, short answer, lightning fast. They believe that the Logos is not the word made flesh like the incarnation principle that we learn about since they reject incarnation they simply believe that the logos is the word that existed in the in the mind of god 
didn't come out of God's mouth and become a human being like Jesus. Instead, the word is was spoken out of God's mouth, but it's the thought of God. And so there's no personification going on. However, when we do get down later into John, where John is definitely dealing with Jesus being brought into the scene, what they simply say, the Unitarians do, along with Biblical Unitarian, if I remember reading correctly and interacting with them, they say that John is simply describing the fact that the personification uh jesus took on all of the full aspect the fullness of what is described as the personification of god speaking the world into existence so the word becoming flesh is not an incarnation principle it's rather personification um in its fullest sense of just we're talking about jesus um exemplifies all that god all that the word of god represents without actually being that being in eternity past so they 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 snap the connection they sever the connection between the uh word of god who existed in eternity past as a person and the incarnation where jesus exists on planet earth as a human they sever that connection and simply affirm that jesus is truly human fully human that's all and that the word of god is simply one of god's attributes that god has possessed for all eternity but not as a separate person instead simply there's only one person of god so let me finish this part of my commentary tonight uh, i go on to say that this connection between the uh, wisdom in proverbs and the logos of john underscores the divine creative power and agency of both wisdom and the logos so we're having this big long discussion about um uh the wisdom of God in Proverbs and the Logos of God in the book of John and drawing the parallels. In the Gospel of John, I go on to say the incarnation of the Logos in Jesus Christ is emphasized, right? John 1.14. This echoes the Trinitarian understanding that Jesus, the Son of God, is the embodiment of divine wisdom and fulfills the role of the personified wisdom found in the book of proverbs and so as we're working my way towards my summary what we're finding out is that i do agree with a bit of what biblical unitarian had to say on the proverbs 823 verse that it represents personification however they cut short from agreeing with trinitarians that wisdom equals jesus in the incarnation they they that's where they stop they say yes wisdom is god is personified in the book of proverbs but wisdom is not jesus so let me read my summary and that'll close out this part of my commentary and we'll be poised to pick up the commentary with the next section next week I go on to say, in summary for this section about the logos and the parallel with the uh uh, wisdom in the book of proverbs in summary the trinitarian understanding finds resonance in the personification of wisdom in proverbs 8 23 and the portrayal of the logos in john 1 1 1 through 18 how both passages depict depict a divine person who was with god from the beginning right john of course is going to give us the best language when i'm talking about a divine person who was with God from the beginning, who was involved in creation, and who ultimately in, was incarnated in Jesus Christ. You have to read through the rest of the account in John, knowing that that's where he's going, but also knowing that he's not inventing this aspect where God was utilizing an aspect that was along with him all uh, from creation past, and yet eventually in the mystery of God, be or the mystery of Christ, or the mystery of 
of the incarnation actually became the individual known as Jesus, and yet already had his own identity as the second person of the Trinity. He just wasn't called Jesus in eternity past. His name would have been something like the eternal word of God, or the logos of God, or uh, even when we read to the angel, uh, through the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord occupies that place where Trinitarians would describe Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus as the Christophany in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, fits that role, who is both equated with God, embodies the name of God, is able to speak for God in first person, and actually has the exclusive tetragrammaton uh, covenantal name of God on him and in him, and 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 it's called that by it's called Yahweh, Y H V H, the Tetragrammaton. It's called that by the the people who encounter the angel of the Lord. I mean, go figure. So let's keep reading. Let's conclude this parallel part. These parallels, I said, this conclusion. These parallels suggest a deeper connection between the personified wisdom of the Old Testament and the logos of the New Testament, providing insights into the Trinitarian nature of God and the eternal coexistence of the Son with the Father. And that's where we'll leave off tonight. Next week, we'll be ready to turn a little bit deeper into the Greek of the Septuagint, since we looked at a lot of the Greek tonight from the book of John. We'll enter the Septuagint Greek and look at Proverbs 8.23 and play with some of the words there. We still have John in the back of our mind now, but now we're just going to look at how the writer the writers to the book of um, Proverbs utilize some key words to, to bring out this aspect of how are we to better understand this wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to share my thoughts with the students, to challenge them, and to be challenged myself as I dialogue and interact with people who watch my videos and read my uh, commentaries online at my website and listen to my podcasts and receive my newsletters and things like that. Lord, what a, what a privilege to share the good news with those who don't know, but at the same time to have well-meaning conversations with people about these topics because I'm sharpened uh, in this iron sharpening iron uh, kind of debate that goes on in miniature fashion. Lord, I don't have all the answers, but I am aware that there are certain truths that the Bible portrays that the Holy Spirit will reveal to anyone who makes himself, um, who avails himself of all of the resources that are left for us, Lord. If we practice a sola scriptura, which is the Bible is our sole authority, and tota scriptura, as the Bible uh, received in its entirety, then we will not run the danger and run the trap of short-changing or short-circuiting our theology like many denominations do, like Jehovah's Witnesses, like Oneness Pentecostals, like uh, 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 Biblical Unitarians, uh, Iglesia de Cristo, um, uh, things like that. Uh, these types of groups that deny Trinity, they, they deny God in His fullness because they don't really give the New Testament the full weight and the full authority of the voice that it has supplied for this particular discussion. So thank you, Lord, that we have the words given to us, not just to reveal who you are to us, but like we said in the earlier study with the 
eschatology, we have your words given to prepare us for the soon return of our Lord Yeshua, of our Master uh, to planet Earth, to gather us to Himself, to usher in the kingdom, to execute judgment, to pour out wrath upon the wicked of humanity, and to pay back um, with righteous indignation uh, those who have spurned your word, those who have uh, turned uh, uh, their eyes away from the Son of God, those who seek to throw off your rule, those who seek to destroy the truth of the gospel, those who are enemies of God. Lord, you have promised that one day you will meet your end, and um, the, the, they, speaking to those wicked, you will they will meet their end, you will meet your end, and the Lord will be established in righteousness. And guess what? We, the righteous, will inherit the kingdom along with our Lord and Savior, Yeshua. So thank you, Lord, for these promises that are yes and amen, men in Christ, and that we can hold with a certainty that are the blessed hope that we look forward to. Keep us safe. Keep us um, in the light. Don't let us slip into the darkness. Don't let us fall asleep in our spiritual state, uh, but help us to continue to uh, keep watchful and keep ready and to stay awake spiritually. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory, but shame Yeshua. Amen.